Book Two, Chapter Six of the Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Book Two, The Arrival, Chapter Six: The Two Stand Face to Face. The room had been arranged with a view to the dancing the large oak table having been moved back till it stood as a breastwork to the fireplace. At each end, behind, and in the chimney-corner were grouped the guests, many of them being warm-faced and panting, among whom Eustatia cursorily recognized some well-to-do persons from beyond the heath. Thomason, as she had expected, was not visible, and Eustatia recollected that a light had shone from an upper window when they were outside, the window, probably, of Thomason's room. A nose, chin, hands, knees, and toes projected from the seat within the chimney opening, which members she found to unite in the person of Grandfer Cantle, Mrs. Yobright's occasional assistant in the garden, and therefore one of the invited. The smoke went up from an etna of peat in front of him, played round the notches of the chimney-crook, struck against the salt-box, and got lost among the flitches. Another part of the room soon riveted her gaze. At the other side of the chimney stood the settle, which is the necessary supplement to a fire so open that nothing less than a strong breeze will carry up the smoke. It is, to the hearths of old-fashioned cavernous fireplaces, what the east belt of trees is to the exposed country estate, or the north wall to the garden. Outside the settle candles gutter, locks of hair wave, young women shiver, and old men sneeze. Inside is paradise. Not a symptom of a draught disturbs the air. The sitters' backs are as warm as their faces, and songs and old tales are drawn from the occupants by a comfortable heat, like fruit from melon plants in a frame. It was, however, not with those who sat in the settle that Eustatia was concerned. A face showed itself with marked distinctness against the dark-tanned wood of the upper part. The owner, who was leaning against the settle's outer end, was Clement Yobright, or Klim, as he was called here. She knew it could be nobody else. The spectacle constituted an area of two feet in Rembrandt's intensest manner. A strange power in the lounger's appearance lay in the fact that, though his whole figure was visible, the observer's eye was only aware of his face. To one of middle age the countenance was that of a young man though a youth might hardly have seen any necessity for the term of immaturity. But it was really one of those faces which convey less the idea of so many years as its age than of so much experience as its store. The number of their years may have adequately summed up Jared, Mahalalil, and the rest of the antediluvians, but the age of a modern man is to be measured by the intensity of his history. The face was well shaped, even excellently, but the mind within was beginning to use it as a mere waste tablet whereon to trace its idiosyncrasies as they developed themselves. The beauty here visible would in no long time be ruthlessly overrun by its parasite, thought, which might just as well have fed upon a plainer exterior where there was nothing it could harm. Had heaven preserved Yobright from a wearing habit of meditation, people would have said, a handsome man. Had his brain unfolded on sharper contours, they would have said, a thoughtful man. But an inner strenuousness was preying upon an outer symmetry, and they rated his look as singular. 
Hence people who began by beholding him ended by perusing him. His countenance was overlaid with legible meanings. Without being thought-worn, he yet had certain marks derived from a perception of his surroundings, such as are not unfrequently found on men at the end of the four or five years of endeavour which followed the close of placid pupilage. He already showed that thought is a disease of flesh, and indirectly bore evidence that ideal physical beauty is incompatible with emotional developments and a full recognition of the coil of things. Mental luminousness must be fed with the oil of life, even though there is already a physical need for it, and the pitiful sight of two demands on one supply was just showing itself here. When standing before certain men, the philosopher regrets that thinkers are but perishable tissue, the artist that perishable tissue has to think. Thus to deplore, each from his point of view, the mutually destructive interdependence of spirit and flesh would have been instinctive with these in critically observing Yobright. As for his look, it was a natural cheerfulness striving against depression from without, and not quite succeeding. The look suggested isolation, but it revealed something more. As is usual with bright natures, the deity that lies ignominiously chained within an ephemeral human carcass shone out of him like a ray. The effect upon Eustacia was palpable. The extraordinary pitch of excitement that she had reached beforehand would, indeed, have caused her to be influenced by the most commonplace man. She was troubled at Yobright's presence. The remainder of the play ended. The Saracen's head was cut off, and St. George stood as victor. Nobody commented any more than they would have commented on the fact of mushrooms coming in autumn or snowdrops in spring. They took the piece as phlegmatically as did the actors themselves. It was a phase of cheerfulness which was, as a matter of course, to be passed through every Christmas, and there was no more to be said. They sang the plaintive chant which follows the play, during which all the dead men rise to their feet in a silent and awful manner, like the ghosts of Napoleon's soldiers in the midnight review. Afterwards the door opened, and Fairway appeared on the threshold, accompanied by Christian and another. They had been waiting outside for the conclusion of the play, as the players had waited for the conclusion of the dance. "'Come in, come in,' said Mrs. Yobright, and Clem went forward to welcome them. "'How is it you are so late? Grandfather Cantle had been here ever so long, and we thought you'd have come with him, as you live so near one another.' "'Well, I should have come earlier,' Mr. Fairway said, and paused to look along the beam of the ceiling for a nail to hang his hat on. But— finding his accustomed one to be occupied by the mistletoe and all the nails in the walls to be burdened with bunches of holly he at last relieved himself of the hat by ticklishly balancing it between the candle-box and the head of the clock-case i should have come earlier ma'am he resumed with a more composed air but i know what parties be and how there is none too much room in folks houses at such times so i thought i wouldn't come till you'd got settled a bit and I thought so too, Mrs. Yobright, said Christian earnestly. But father there was so eager that he had no manners at all, and left home almost afore twas dark. I told him twas barely decent in a old man to come so over soon, but words be wind. I wasn't going to bide waiting about till half the game was over. I'm as light as a kite when anything's going on, crowed Grandfather Cantle from the chimney seat. 
Fairway had meanwhile concluded a critical gaze at Yobright. Now you may not believe it, he said to the rest of the room, but I should never have known this gentleman if I had met him anywhere of his own hearth. He has altered so much. <laughs> you too have altered, and for the better, I think, Timothy, said Yobright, surveying the firm figure of Fairway. Master Yobright, look me over too. I have altered for the better, haven't I, eh? said Granfer Cantle, rising and placing himself something above half a foot from Clem's eye to induce the most searching criticism. "'To be sure we will,' said Fairway, taking the candle and moving it over the surface of the Granfer's countenance, the subject of his scrutiny irradiating himself with light and pleasant smiles and giving himself jerks of juvenility. "'You haven't changed much,' said Dilbright. "'If there is any difference, Granfer is younger.' appended fairway decisively and yet not my own doing and i feel no pride in it said the pleased ancient but i can't be cured of my vagaries them i plead guilty to yes master cantle always was that as we know but i'm nothing by the side of you mr Clem. nor any of us said humphrey in a low rich tone of admiration not intended to reach anybody's ears really there would have been nobody here who could have stood as decent second to him or even third if i hadn't been a soldier in the bang-up locals as we was called for our smartness said Granfer cantle and even as tis we all look a little scamish beside him but in the year four twas said there wasn't a finer figure in the whole of south wessex than i as I looked when dashing past the shop winders with the rest of our company on the day we ran out of Budmouth, because it was thought that Boney had landed round the point, there was I, straight as a young poplar, with me firelock and me bagnet and me spatter dashes and me stock sawing my jaws off and my accoutrement sheening like the seven stars. Yes, neighbours, I was a pretty sight in my soldiering days. You ought to have seen me in four. "'Tis his mother's side where Master Clem's figure comes from, bless ye," said Timothy. "'I knowed her brothers well. Longer coffins were never made in the whole country of South Wessex, and tis said that poor George's knees were crumpled up a little even as it was.' "'Coffins? Where?' inquired Christian, drawing nearer. "'Have the ghost of one appeared to anybody, Master Fairway?' no no don't let your mind so mislead your ears christian and be a man said timothy reproachfully i will said christian but now i think god my shatter last night seemed just the shape of a coffin what is it a sign of when your shade's like a coffin neighbours it can't be nothing to be afeard of i suppose afeard no said the grandfer faith I was never afeard of nothing except Boney, for I shouldn't have been the soldier I was. Yes, tis a thousand pities you didn't see me in four. By this time the mummers were preparing to leave, but Mrs. Yobright stopped them by asking them to sit down and have a little supper. To this invitation Father Christmas, in the name of them all, readily agreed. Eustacia was happy in the opportunity of staying a little longer. The cold and frosty night without was doubly frigid to her, but the lingering was not without its difficulties. Mrs. Yobright, for want of room in the larger apartment,
placed a bench for the mummers halfway through the pantry door, which opened from the sitting-room. Here they seated themselves in a row, the door being left open. Thus they were still virtually in the same apartment. Mrs. Yobright now murmured a few words to her son, who crossed the room to the pantry door, striking his head against the mistletoe as he passed, and brought the mummers beef and bread, cake pastry, mead, and elder wine, the waiting being done by him and his mother, that the little maidservant might sit as guest. The mummers doffed their helmets and began to eat and drink. "'But you will surely have some,' said Clem to the Turkish knight, as he stood before that warrior, tray in hand. She had refused, and still sat covered, only the sparkle of her eyes being visible between the ribbons which covered her face. "'None, thank you,' replied Eustacia. "'He is quite a youngster,' said the Saracen, apologetically. "'And you must excuse him. He's not one of the old set, but have joined us because t'other couldn't come.' "'But he will take something,' persisted Deobright. "'Try a glass of mead or elder wine.' "'Yes, you had better try that,' said the Saracen. "'It will keep the cold out going home along.' Though Eustacia could not eat without uncovering her face, she could drink easily enough beneath her disguise. The elder wine was accordingly accepted, and the glass vanished inside the ribbons. At moments during this performance Eustacia was half in doubt about the security of her position, yet it had a fearful joy. A series of attentions paid to her, and yet not to her, but to some imaginary person, by the first man she had ever been inclined to adore, complicated her emotions indescribably. She had loved him, partly because he was exceptional in this scene, partly because she had determined to love him, chiefly because she was in desperate need of loving somebody after wearying of Wild Eve. Believing that she must love him in spite of herself, she had been influenced after the fashion of the second Lord Littleton and other persons who have dreamed that they were to die on a certain day, and by stress of a morbid imagination have actually brought about that event. Once let a maiden admit the possibility of her being stricken with love for somewhat at a certain hour and place, and the thing is as good as done. Did anything at this moment suggest to Yobright the sex of the creature whom that fantastic guise enclosed, how extended was her scope, both in feeling and in making others feel, and how far her compass transcended that of her companions in the band? When the disguised queen of love appeared before Aeneas, a preternatural perfume accompanied her presence and betrayed her quality. If such a mysterious emanation ever was projected by the emotions of an earthly woman upon her object, it must have signified Eustacia's presence to Yobright now. He looked at her wistfully, then seemed to fall into a reverie, as if he were forgetting what he observed. The momentary situation ended, he passed on, and Eustacia sipped her wine without knowing what she drank. The man for whom she had predetermined to nourish a passion went into the small room, and across it to the further extremity. The mummers, as has been stated, were seated on a bench, one end of which was extended into the small apartment, or pantry, for want of space in the outer room. Eustacia, partly from shyness, had chosen the midmost seat, which thus commanded a view of the interior of the party as well as the room containing the guests. When Clem passed down the pantry, her eyes followed him in the gloom which prevailed there. At the remote end was a door, which, just as he was about to open it for himself, was opened by somebody within, and light streamed forth. The person was Thomason, with a candle, 
looking anxious, pale, and interesting. Yobright appeared glad to see her and pressed her hand. "'That's right, Tamsie,' he said heartily, as though recalled to himself by the sight of her. "'You have decided to come down. I am glad of it.' "'Hush, no, no,' she said quickly. "'I only came to speak to you.' "'But why not join us?' "'I cannot. At least I would rather not. I am not well enough, and we shall have plenty of time together now you are going to be home a good long holiday.' "'It isn't nearly so pleasant without you. Are you really ill?' "'Just a little, my old cousin. Here,' she said, playfully sweeping her hand across her heart. "'Ah! Mother should have asked somebody else to be present tonight, perhaps.' "'Oh, no, indeed. I merely stepped down, clean to ask you.' Here he followed her through the doorway into the private room beyond, and, the door closing, Eustacia and the mummer who sat next to her, the only other witness of the performance, saw and heard no more. The heat flew to Eustacia's head and cheeks. She instantly guessed that Clem, having been home only these two or three days, had not as yet been made acquainted with Thomason's painful situation with regard to Wildeve, and seeing her living there just as she had been living before he left home, he naturally suspected nothing. Eustacia felt a wild jealousy of Thomason on the instant. Though Thomason might possibly have tender sentiments towards another man, as yet, how long could they be expected to last when she was shut up here with this interesting and travelled cousin of hers? There was no knowing what affection might soon break out between the two, so constantly in each other's society, and not a distracting object near. Clem's boyish love for her might have languished, but it might easily be revived again. Eustacia was nettled by her own contrivances. What a sheer waste of herself, to be dressed thus while another was shining to advantage! Had she known the full effect of the encounter, she would have moved heaven and earth to get here in a natural manner. The power of her face all lost, the charm of her emotions all disguised, the fascinations of her coquetry denied existence, nothing but a voice left to her. She had a sense of the doom of Echo. "'Nobody here respects me,' she said. She had overlooked the fact that in coming as a boy among other boys she would be treated as a boy. The slight, though of her own causing and self-explanatory, she was unable to dismiss as unwittingly shown, so sensitive had the situation made her. Women have done much for themselves in histrionic dress. The look far below those who, like a certain personator of Polly Peachum early in the last century, and another of Lydia Languish early in this, have won not only love, but ducal coronets into the bargain, whole shoals of them have reached to the initial satisfaction of getting love almost whence they would. But the Turkish knight was denied even the chance of achieving this by the fluttering ribbons which she dared not brush aside. Yobright returned to the room without his cousin. When within two or three feet of Eustacia he stopped, as if again arrested by a thought. He was gazing at her. She looked another way, disconcerted, and wondered how long this purgatory was to last. After lingering a few seconds, he passed on again. To court their discomfiture by love is a common instinct with certain perfervid women. Conflicting sensations of love, fear, and shame reduced Eustacia to a state of the utmost uneasiness. To escape was her great and immediate desire. The other mummers appeared to be in no hurry to leave, and, murmuring to the lad who sat next to her, 
that she preferred waiting for them outside the house, she moved to the door as imperceptibly as possible, opened it, and slipped out. The calm, lone scene reassured her. She went forward to the palings and leant over them, looking at the moon. She had stood thus but a little time when the door again opened. Expecting to see the remainder of the band, Eustacia turned. But no, Clem Yobright came out as softly as she had done and closed the door behind him. He advanced and stood beside her. "'I have an odd opinion,' he said, "'and I should like to ask you a question. Are you a woman, or am I wrong?' "'I am a woman.' His eyes lingered on her with great interest. "'Do girls often play as mummers now? They never used to.' "'They don't now.' "'Why did you?' "'To get excitement and shake off depression,' she said in low tones. "'What depressed you?' "'Life.' That's a cause of depression a good many have to put up with. Yes. A long silence. And do you find excitement? Asked Clem at last. At this moment, perhaps. Then you are vexed at being discovered? Yes, though I thought I might be. I would gladly have asked you to our party had I known you wished to come. Have I ever been acquainted with you in my youth? Never. Won't you come in again and stay as long as you like? No. I wish not to be further recognized. Well, you are safe with me. After remaining in thought a minute, he added gently, I will not intrude upon you any longer. It is a strange way of meeting, and I will not ask why I find a cultivated woman playing such a part as this. She did not volunteer the reason which he seemed to hope for, and he wished her good night, going thence round to the back of the house, where he walked up and down by himself for some time before entering. Eustacia, warmed with an inner fire, could not wait for her companions after this. She flung back the ribbons from her face, opened the gate, and at once struck into the heath. She did not hasten along. Her grandfather was in bed at this hour, for she so frequently walked upon the hills on moonlit nights that he took no notice of her comings and goings, and, enjoying himself in his own way, left her to do likewise. A more important subject than that of getting indoors now engrossed her. Yobright, if he had the least curiosity, would infallibly discover her name. What then? She first felt a sort of exultation at the way in which the adventure had terminated, even though at moments between her exultations she was abashed and blushful. Then this consideration returned to chill her. What was the use of her exploit? She was at present a total stranger to the Obright family. The unreasonable nimbus of romance with which she had encircled that man might be her misery. How could she allow herself to become so infatuated with a stranger, and to fill the cup of her sorrow? There would be Thomason, living day after day in inflammable proximity to him, for she had just learnt that contrary to her first belief he was going to stay at home some considerable time she reached the wicket at mistover knapp but before opening it she turned and faced the heath once more the form of rainbarrow stood above the hills and the moon stood above rainbarrow the air was charged with silence and frost the scene reminded eustacia of a circumstance which till that moment she had totally forgotten she had promised to meet Wildeve by the barrow this very night at eight, to give a final answer to his pleading for an elopement. She herself had fixed the evening and the hour. 
he had probably come to the spot, waited there in the cold, and been greatly disappointed. Well, so much the better. It did not hurt him, she said serenely. Wildeef had, at present, the rayless outline of the sun through smoked glass, and she could say such things as that with the greatest facility. She remained deeply pondering, and Thomason's winning manner towards her cousin arose again upon Eustace's mind. "'Oh, that she had been married to Damon before this,' she said. "'And she would, if it hadn't been for me. If I had only known, if I had only known!' Eustacia once more lifted her deep, stormy eyes to the moonlight, and, sighing that tragic sigh of hers, which was so much like a shudder, entered the shadow of the roof. She threw off her trappings in the outhouse, rolled them up, and went indoors to her chamber. End of Book Two, Chapter Six